If you think about women in general in, in the NHS, we make up 77% of the workforce. Well, how come something as obvious as preparing people for parenthood and supporting them through parenthood isn't taken more seriously within NHS employing organisations? If we want to have 77% of women working in the NHS, we have to find a way to cut them a bit of slack when they have small children and, and to treat them better so that they want to stay. Hello and welcome to the Mothers in Medicine podcast, the place where we'll be having honest and open conversations with leaders in the medical field who are also mothers. I'm Dr. Scholler. I'm a neurology registrar, a wife and a mother. I love my job and I love my family, but life as a mother and a doctor can be hectic. Over the coming weeks, I'll be asking my guests about their real life experiences and they'll share their practical tips and advice for managing the juggle. In this episode, we are shining a spotlight on a critical issue that continues to persist in the medical field, the gender pay gap. Today, male doctors make as much as 18% more than women. This is considerably higher than in other professions, the gap being 2% for accountants and 8% for teachers. Today, I'm joined by Professor Dame Jane Dacre, Honorary Consultant Rheumatologist and former President of the Royal College of Physicians. Jane is a Professor of Medical Education, was the clinical lead for the development of the first clinical skills centre in the UK and led the 2020 independent review into the gender pay gap in medicine in England, making friends with former adversary Jeremy Hunt in the process. Hello, Professor Dacre. Good to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I was just wondering, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I am a physician. I'm a professor of medical education. My clinical background is a, as a physician rheumatologist, but I've recently got into medical leadership. I was president of the Royal College of Physicians. I'm president of the Medical Protection Society. I've now retired from my day job, <clears throat> so stopped my clinical work and I do more of the leadership policy stuff than the other stuff that I was previously doing in, in medicine and education. I've read a lot about your work um, involving women in leadership and in particular the gender pay gap um, review. Um, for those who don't know, can you explain to us what is the gender pay gap? Yeah, so a lot of people get confused <coughs> between the gender pay gap and equal pay. And a gender pay gap is the um, difference in the hourly rate. It's the mean difference in the hourly rate of pay between men and women expressed as a percentage of men's pay. And when we first started working on it, the gender pay gap in medicine was nearly 18%, which is very high for a single professional group. Uh, most professions, um, single professions have a pay gap of about six or seven percent. And in medicine, it's much higher. Uh, it depends which specialty you're in. It tends to be higher in male dominated specialties. 
And the difference between a gender pay gap and also equal pay is really that a gender pay gap is about your whole lifetime of employment. And it suggests that women over their employment lifetime are earning less than men per hour. What um, inspired you to get involved um, with the review of the gender pay gap? <laughs> I wasn't inspired, I was asked. Um, so I became interested in women in medicine when I was vice president at the College of Physicians. And I've gradually become more and more, I suppose, radicalised about it as I looked at the differences. And uh, when I was president of the uh, College of Physicians, I got to know Jeremy Hunt very well, because we actually had harsh words with each other over the junior doctor strike in 2016. And uh, we were adversaries. And at the time, I it was interesting because he then decided I was somebody that it was difficult to mess with. And so when a difficult job came along, like the review of the gender pay gap, he actually asked me if I would do it. And I did. And since then, he and I have, have uh, managed our differences and actually now get on very well. I was reading a little bit about you and um, your childhood um, and how that's been something of an inspiration and where you are today. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? <laughs> an inspiration or a coping strategy. Uh, I was in a family of four. I was the second child and I was the only girl. So I spent a lot of my childhood actually trying to keep up with the boys or keeping the boys in check. And so um, I learnt at a very early age how to manage men and boys. And uh, I think I'm probably still doing it. I try not to let them get the better of me. And that's always been the case. So when I'm in a, a male dominated environment, which I very frequently am, I can still speak up. Um, and I try to find a way of doing it without causing offence. In medicine, the gender pay gap is significantly more than in other professions um, 18%. Why do you think that is the case in medicine specifically? So the main contributor, interestingly, is that there are more senior men in medicine than there are women. Some of that's due to age, but not all of it. Uh, some of it is due to the fact that men get promoted more in medicine than women do, uh, and they reach the higher levels of the profession uh, more than women do. You you can sort of look for all sorts of reasons. Um, men are more likely to get clinical excellence awards. Men are less likely to take time out for childcare reasons. And every time a woman takes time out for childcare reasons, she suffers something called the motherhood penalty, which is a, a reduction in the pay trajectory. So there are a number of different factors which all feed into it being a, a, a high uh, level of pay. And in the um, pay gap review, we looked to define those factors so that we could come up with recommendations to reduce them. And we've been working collaboratively with all sorts of organisations, the BMA, the former HEE, NHS England, NHS Employers, Department of Health, um, to address all of these small factors that feed into the gender pay gap. And guess what? It's coming down. It's now 12.7%, which... I'm really pleased about. And interestingly, that's due to collaborative effort, 
no single organisation or person can take the credit for it. It's due to working together. What are the specific measures that have been put in place and and what do you think still needs to be done in, in order to reduce that gap? Well, we identified 42 recommendations Um, The majority of which people have started working on, uh, but obviously with a a project like this, you you never really complete it. But there are some big ticket items. So, for example, the the SAS doctor contract, the staff and associate specialist contract, renegotiation took into account the gender pay gap and reduced the number of spine points within the pay scale, uh, which had been shown in our research to reduce the gender pay gap because it stops uh, the men from accelerating more quickly than the women. Um, So that's been implemented and is now being rolled out as ever there are teething problems with it but but that's been a, a a big thing another is the reform of clinical excellence awards so they contributed to around 20% of the pay gap and uh so a, a whole suite of reforms have been done to try and reduce uh the gap and um Yeah, it seems to be working. So various things like not having to go consecutively through the grades and having and just applying and being awarded on merit, uh, changing the domains in in clinical excellence awards to try and uh, encourage behaviours that women are good at as well as behaviours that men are good at. So that that's been a a a big um, impact. Uh, There are some that are still pending. The CQC has uh, said they will undertake to put um, how a gender pay gap is moving into their well-led domain when they uh, review hospitals. So that's that's one of them. There's a quite big piece about... um, uh, about behaviours, and that's become very topical recently about how inappropriate behaviours, including misogyny and sexual harassment, uh, cause women to move into different jobs and sometimes leave their specialty or leave medicine altogether. Um, and a lot of work's going on to address that uh, at the moment. So there are a lot of, a lot of different things that different organisations are focusing on. Um, uh, one I probably should mention is the promotion of more women uh, to senior positions. So making sure that, that there are women on a shortlist and enough women on a shortlist to ensure that, that uh, they have a, a reasonable chance of being appointed. Um, so all of those little things are adding together, I think. So since the NHS was um, founded, the landscape has obviously changed and there has been significant improvements over the years you know even the work that you've been involved in that's come out from the gender pay gap and those recommendations but of course some people would say that that the gap is still too great and there's still a lot of inequality um, which makes it difficult for women and I think that's also reflected in things like the parents in surgery report in, even in the news recently but what can we do as mothers in medicine to help ourselves uh, well, there are, there are a number of things. And I think what I now try to do all the time, really, is shine a light on inequalities. 
I see the uh, gender pay gap as a numerical measure of inequality. And we doctors are quite good at looking at numbers and seeing how numbers are going up and down. So uh, I think that everybody, every woman in every trust should look at their trust's gender pay gap. And there's now an, an app on the BBC website where you can put in your organisation and find out what your pay gap is. So people should do that. And then people should go to their trust board and say, hey, we've got a gender pay gap of whatever it is. What is the trust doing to bring it down? So that would be something that everybody can do. Um, uh, Another thing is to uh, support flexibility. So I recently put out a tweet about how difficult it was for for parents in medicine and got a huge number of replies that pointed to a lack of flexibility in the workplace. So, for example, why do clinics always have to start at nine and finish at lunchtime or start at two and finish at five? Why can't they start... Um, at times that are, that are more reasonable to people who are having to drop kids off at, at childcare. Why don't trusts provide better childcare? Why don't they provide nursery places? Why don't those nursery places open out of hours? And if you think about women in general in, in the NHS, not only doctors, we make up 77% of the workforce. Well, how come something as obvious as preparing people for parenthood and supporting them through parenthood isn't taken more seriously within NHS employing organisations? So I think shining a light on that and personally not being angry about it, but just coming up with practical solutions. Um, rotations that's another one in training so the length of a doctor's training is far too long particularly if you're training part-time why don't we have competency-based training length instead of time served so that if you pick up your competencies quickly you can train more quickly why do people have to rotate around the geographical regions, which means that sometimes they've got very long and unhelpful commutes, commutes which are incompatible with childcare arrangements. There's a lot of practical stuff that can be done without changing any laws, but just by women working together, shining a light on the issues, not getting cross, but just saying, why didn't you do it like this? I know today you're on grandma duty with your six-week-old new grandchild. Um, I am, yes. <laughs> congratulations. Sorry about that. No, no, this is life. This is what being a mother in medicine <laughs> is all about. Um, but w- w- just going back, w- what did life as a mother in medicine, you know, in the early years, what did that look like for you? Oh, it was it was a survival course. Uh, it was very difficult. Childcare was difficult to organise, extremely expensive, very hard to manage. And I used to think I've got three children. Or I had three children. Uh, I used to think that about five or six people needed to be well and functioning for me to be able to get to work without worrying. Uh, and the childcare went wrong very frequently for all sorts of reasons. Uh, and I was always what I called the lowest common denominator, that I was the person that had to, to pull out of something and, and, uh, try and try and sort something out at the last minute. So it was very, very difficult and very expensive. I think it's probably even worse now for a number of reasons. Uh, now, I struggled through it because I loved my job and because I just 
felt that I needed to stay at work. I felt hugely guilty all the time. Uh, I had terrible maternal guilt. Um, if my children were ill and I had to farm them out somewhere or I even dosed them up with cowpoll and sent them into nursery because I had nothing else to do, it was hugely difficult. Uh, my husband was working as a very senior journalist at the time and if there was a, a war in a small country, we'd have a fight over who would have to look after, who'd have to manage the children. Um, it was very, very hard. But um, we muddled through, we cobbled it all together. Uh, but I have to say, looking down from the other end of the telescopes, I don't think my kids noticed. They really don't tell me oh, it was awful that you only turned up at my sports day for five minutes and then got bleeped away. Yeah, I mean, these are things that come up again and again, you know, so many women finding themselves in that position of just feeling it is survival mode. The childcare is a massive challenge, a massive challenge. And, you know, how the stress that it puts on um, on, on the rest of your home life, on, on your relationships is all significant. And of course, it affects then how we go into work and how we're able to... Um, perform in the workplace it's very difficult when your mind is you know sort of divided on so many different things at that mental load that we carry and work are not sympathetic when my daughter was about three or four my husband was covering I think it it was a, a big story I think it was the release of a hostage so he was in Jordan uh I was at work in Whips Cross Hospital, which was 45 minutes away because I'd rotated up there. Uh, and I got a call from the A&E that my uh, daughter had been swinging on her chair and had fallen over and bitten through her tongue and was bleeding terribly. And they had to rush her to hospital. And um, she was held down and her tongue was stitched back together. Uh, with no local anaesthetic and without her mother there, uh, as I was furiously driving down um, from work to, to try and arrive. And I arrived uh, what once all of the drama was over and, and took her home. And I got no slack at all from work. Um, the, 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 what the comments are, oh, well, you know, you're less reliable than you used to be before you had children. And I think that still happens. I know it still happens. And it's, it's you know, if, if we want to have 50% or 77% of women working in the NHS, we have to find a way to cut them a bit of slack when they have small children and, tweet, and to treat them better so that they want to stay. Yeah, and, that, and that's really difficult. I mean, I work in a, a really supportive workplace, but it is difficult and you do hear those stories and sometimes you kind of you kind of think oh you know this is what people are thinking and, and then certain things are said and it can be really challenging like what advice would you give to kind of like managing that how did you manage that well I felt terrible it was it was uh very difficult um my husband and my family were all were all behind me and were all supporting me so I would talk to them I would talk to female friends and I just developed this kind of resilience of just getting up and getting on with it. Chronically tired, um, chronically feeling as if I wasn't doing anything properly or wasn't doing anything well. 
Um, and it was just very hard. Is there anything that you would have done differently now, looking back? Um, I wish I'd had more stable childcare arrangements, but I don't know quite how I could have made that happen differently. Um, and I think looking back now, I would have sought more help from uh, practical help. Yeah. Practical help. As it was, as soon as as soon as uh, you could possibly do an Ocado style shop, I was on it. <laughs> I was an early adopter of all sorts of labour saving devices. Yeah. I gave up ironing. I never do don't do household chores, etc. Uh, etc. Et so I minimised everything I had to do in the home. <coughs> um, my husband had to to, to take his share. Um, I think fathers these days generally probably take more of a share of the childcare than they used to. So that would have been, that would have been, um, good. And I think what I would have done, which I didn't have the opportunity to do if I could have, was to work part time. But I think that the, uh, extended length of training now that people have from working part time is counterproductive. Uh, I, and people would disagree with me, me with this, but I think being a parent teaches you a huge amount about managing yourself, managing others, teamwork, communication skills. Uh, you don't have to be in a hospital to be able to learn those things. And actually your life skills probably make up for the time that you're not there. But, you know, I'm in a minority. Not everybody agrees with me on that. Those are some good points and, and things that I think a lot of people relate to. Certainly I have had to learn to streamline, outsource um, and prioritise as much as possible. Exactly. And, you know, managing conflict. Oh, my God. Having three children is a very good way of learning how to manage conflict. And I interestingly found myself taking those skills to work. And they work on adults as well as children. What would you say to your younger self now? Um, I would say be positive and keep going. Don't give up because there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, I now look back and feel like I've had a dream career. And a lot of people have uh, careers that involve a lot of boredom, uh, a lot of um, same, same old, same old stuff. Medicine is hugely variable. There are all sorts of different things that you can do. And overall, I'm really pleased that I did what I did. And, and so I would say worry about it less, feel less guilty. And I remember that great quote, which I think is from Hindu, uh, a Hindu proverb or something that says it will be all right in the end and if it isn't all right, it isn't the end. <laughs> nice. Just t two last things. Um, you mentioned there how some of those challenges might have affected, you know, even your relationship and sometimes it creates a lot of stress and it is something that people mention and it can be difficult to talk about um, as a lot of things, we don't talk about these things at work, but it does affect us. If you're related, you know, if you, you've had an argument before work and, and, and these things, yeah, it it's does. hard. Um, so how, how, how have you managed to weather the years um, together? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds terrible. Um, well, I think developing an understanding, uh, sharing out the jobs and not feeling resentful about doing them and having honest conversations when the chips are down about who's 
going to be able to be more flexible to to pick up the, the children or do the childcare. But I think I am a, a different generation from perhaps people listening to this. And, and I think the problem still remains that there is a societal expectation that caring for elders and children falls more on on the women. So I, I think open conversations about that in order to address it are important. And so, yes, we've had those conversations. Um, and yes, we've had rows about who was going to do the pickup and who was going to, to do whatever. But somehow, in the end we always manage to find a way through. So I would, I would say that as a, as a positive note to my younger self and to others that you do find a way to, to model through. You know, doctors are clever, they're resourceful, they're able, they're committed. So who better to find their way through the, the kind of mire, the maze that is parenthood whilst being a physician? Um, and finally, in every episode, we ask what three practical tips? You've given us lots of advice and really helpful information. But what are the last, most important three practical tips that you would leave for mothers in medicine? Uh, so I think the first is don't do unnecessary things. Um, and remember that the best is the enemy of the good. If you can be good enough, you don't need to be, you don't need to be the best. Um, so as an example of that, don't bother to go to the shops, do it on Tesco's or whatever. Uh, don't do unnecess- unnecessary, uh, tasks is number one. Um, number two is remember the positives. Uh, remember why you're at work and remember that medicine is actually a brilliant career and the difficult times make us try and forget that. But actually, we are hugely privileged in what we do. Uh, and the the ability to support somebody else in their hour of need, which is what doctors do, is just an extraordinary privilege. Uh, and we forget that when, when we're stressed. Uh, third thing... Try not to feel guilty because my children certainly are really proud of me for what I've done now and they don't remember that I didn't bake a cake on cake baking day or that I only showed up for their race at the school sports day or I sent granny to one of their shows. Uh, at the end of the day, um, they're very proud to have parents who enjoy their work and, and are doing a good professional job. Thank you so much for taking the time out, even whilst on grandma duty, <laughs> um, to um, to come on and to share so openly and honestly. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. So that brings us to the end of today's episode. Please can I ask if you've enjoyed today's episode that you go back to the podcast directory where you downloaded the episode and press follow. Not only will this mean that you don't miss any future episodes, but it also helps the Mothers in Medicine podcast team to continue this work.